Let's stand for the reading of our passage this morning. We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 1. And we'll read Genesis 1 at 27 and 28. This is the word of God. It is eternally true. God created man in his, Im- in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, two, it was two weeks ago, yeah, two weeks ago I started our, our uh, time in the book of Genesis and explained that my take on the first couple chapters of Genesis is going to be around what are called the creation ordinances or creation mandates, you may have heard them called, but those, those commands that God gave to man before man fell. And so, we're, we're focused in on these. And let me remind you that these commands that God gave before the fall are in effect for all of history. Uh, they have not been rescinded, right? They, they are in effect. And so, and they apply not just to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they apply to all mankind. So, what that means and how that works out is very complicated. Um, these should have a cultural effect um, as well as, an eff- but, but more so an effect on the people of God who believe this is the Word of God. So that's, that's what we're doing today, and we're taking up the, the first one <clears throat> today uh, on being fruitful and multiplying. Now, I, I spoke to that two weeks ago, and then last week we had a sermon on the scourge of abortion and spoke to fruitfulness in that. And so this Sunday, I come back to this message of, of fruitfulness. And so, yes, I'm trying to shove it down your throats, okay? <laughs> so here, here we go again. So just to review, these are some of the things that I shared with you two weeks ago. We find out early in Genesis how God ordered his world. He, he made the world, he orders the world, and not merely the world of believers, but the world, all of the world. We find out in this history, this history book, this glimpse into the world before sin corrupted everything, God's will for mankind. We find out exactly what work God gave to his creatures, to his creation, and what order God wanted mankind to follow. And so in Christian theology, these ordering principles are the creation ordinances. And they are, and these are the creation ordinances that I've pulled out of Genesis 1 and 2. The procreation of children, the the replenishing of the earth, the subduing of the earth, man's dominion over the animals and creatures, work, the weekly Sabbath, and marriage. All of those things should should be uh, pursued. 
So that's, that's our a short review. Now, week by week, I want to take up one or a few of these uh, creation ordinances and dive a little bit deeper. Um, today, it's that message. Be, it's that first command of God. Be fruitful and multiply from Genesis 1.28. But we have to take a step back and we have to draw in verse 27 of Genesis 1 which says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the Son of God, Jesus, our Savior, as we read in Mark 10.6, reiterates that fundamental reality. He said, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Okay? Um, As we would expect, Jesus does not evolve right, to have a greater and broader understanding of human sexuality after his incarnation. No. He who created them, male and female, reasserts that it was only male and female that he created them. Okay? No evolution, no evolution, no, um, no new understanding, no growth in his compassion, No, he made male and female, and he reiterates that he only made male and female. Now, have you filled out any forms lately for government agencies? Perhaps like myself for my children's FAFSA. You know that the choices for sexuality include things like non-binary, right? Or intersex. Or my favorite, which I'm always tempted to click... Refuse to answer. Um, Non-binary, just think about that for a moment. Non-binary is a clinical way of rejecting God's creation order of male and female. It is to say that the binary that God set in place, no, not a part of that, outside of that binary. He made male, he made female, and there are no other sexes, brothers and sisters. There are no other sexes. And so, you know, then the exceptions start coming in and people begin speaking of like uh, genetic abnormalities like hermaphroditism, which is an incredibly rare thing. And they try to use that as a foil for those who would hold to just male and female, right? Right? But even hermaphrodites have body parts that generally correspond to the two sexes, you know? Now, I'm not going to go down a rabbit trail of speaking of sexual identity and gender identity and, and uh, as some sort of separate trait divorced from biological reality. Uh, I will not do that. God makes male and female. And it is our duty, now listen to this, it is our duty as men and women to obey the sex God made us when he fashioned us together in our mother's womb. It's our first obedience, male and female. It's fundamental to who we are, right? It, it, um, if God made you a man, brothers, you are to live as a man. You are to reject, it. you are to rejoice 
right? You are, to, you are to embrace, you are to delight in the fact that he made you a man. You are to do the tasks that God has assigned to you as the man. You are not to live as an effeminate. You are not to live as a homosexual. You are not to live as a woman. If God made you a woman, you're to live as a woman, right? If you are to rejoice and delight in the fact that he made you a woman, you are to do the tasks that God has assigned you as a woman. You are to, um, you're not to live as a butch tomboy. Right? You are not to live as a homosexual, and you are not to live as a man. Your sex, assigned to you by God, was no mistake. Right? It was no mistake at all. He made you male or female, and so it is fundamental to your obedience to God to live accordingly. I mean, yes, sin does wreck everything. And men may be tempted by homosexuality, and women too. But when that is the case, it is our duty as Christians to remind those tempted by homosexuality to live in accordance with their sex, male or female, and to live and to do the duties that correspond to their sex. Right? We do not carve out a space in our ethic for men to disobey their God-assigned sex and explore their effeminacy. Don't carve that out. We do not carve out a space in our ethic for women to disobey their sex and explore emotional and sexual intimacy with a woman. Homosexualists, transgenderists, androgynists, and the so-called gay celibate Christian movement all set aside God's creation order and accuse God of making a mistake when he made them male or female. Okay? What you must understand is that homosexuality and rejecting God's binary sexual structure is nothing new. Okay? It is as old as the hills. Think of Genesis 19, right? We're in Genesis 1, just a few pages over. Genesis 19, think of Genesis 19 and the Sodomites, right? You remember the story. Think of the Roman emperors during the time around the New Testament church. Were they upstanding sexual individuals? No. Edward Gibbon, in his classic history of the Roman Empire, states that of the first 14 emperors of Rome, only one was exclusively heterosexual. There's nothing new under the sun. Okay. In other words, only one of those, those Roman empires obeyed the biological reality given to him by God. So what we face today is nothing new. It's only that thousands of years of Christianity spreading through the Western world helped to bring God's Word and its teaching to bear on our marriages and in our homes and on our childbearing and child-rearing. This is now being thrown off, completely thrown off, and we're returning to an old-school paganism. 
Now, for what purpose did God create us male and female with corresponding parts? Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become... No one wants to say it. One flesh. One flesh. And in that marital bond, that one flesh union allows for a man and a woman to obey the creation ordinance that we are considering today. Okay? The marriage context is very important, obviously. That is the place for male and female to come together and make babies. All right? That is the context God provided in order to ensure the nurture, love, and discipline of children. That relationship, that important you know, incubator of the fruit of the one flesh union is required. Okay, and that is why we oppose things like surrogacy, in vitro fertilization, gay adoption, cloning. The marriage union is not present there for the for the for children. Those ways of procreating are often missing the context of marriage or allow for the context of marriage or the marital union to completely be dispensed with. And we say no to those things. One of the three purposes of marriage that I'm required and happy to state at every marriage ceremony is this. Marriage is given for the procreation of children, to be brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord and to the praise of God. God's creation ordinance, be fruitful and multiply, is fulfilled in our marriages. And the biological compatibility of male and female was created for that purpose. Legos, right? Interlocking members. That's what I'm talking about here. The body of the man and the body of the woman are compatible. God made it possible, think of this, that one man and one woman together have everything necessary to make more little image bearers, more praisers of the Creator, more praisers of God. One man and one woman, everything necessary for that. The man lives out his manhood and in more ways than one penetrates into the world to take dominion and into his wife to produce fruit. The woman lives out her womanhood and in more than one ways <laughs> receives the seed of her husband's work to cultivate and the seed of her husband to nurture. All right? Together, man and woman, obeying their God-given sex, come together in marriage to fulfill this first creation ordinance, be fruitful and multiply. But Christians today don't feel much desire to honor God by, by obeying this creation ordinance. It's a real battle. It's a real battle. It's been a real battle in my own ministry to convince young couples, to be fruitful and multiply. We don't feel the burden of the marriage bed and fruitfulness. 
We have a thousand reasons why we can't obey God's creation mandate. I hear them in premarital counseling sessions. And I know this is true because I know this is true very personally because I made a decision that Sarah should go on the pill when we were first married. And she was happy to comply. And we made the, the classic and worst argument, we need to get to know one another before we have children. Then about two or three months into our marriage, we're sitting at the dinner table looking at one another and we said, well, we know one another. What in the world are we doing? We knew one another when we, when a day after our honeymoon started. I mean, what in the world are we thinking? Why did we make that decision? And unfortunately, I was confused. I did not know at that point, that the pill is a board of fashion. I was ignorant. I should not have been ignorant. And I had probably already been taught on this subject by my pastors. And I had not heard it. And so our decision may have caused the death of one of our children. And then it took four years before... Sarah conceived a child in her womb after that. And that delay may have been caused by my decision as well. All because we reasoned that we needed time to get to know one another. Ugh. I mean, I'm so sorry. And I need Jesus. We have had to take that sin to God. And you, if you have done it, ought to take that sin to God as well. Right? And it is sin. And you are guilty. Take the sin to God. Confess it to Him and ask for His mercy. But there are... You know, that was the worst argument. So I hear that a lot. The worst argument. And I was a practitioner of the worst argument I hear. But there are other arguments why we set aside God's creation ordinance and, and will not be fruitful and multiply, even in marriage. We need to finish our college degrees. We need to pay down debt. We need, we're not ready to be a father or mother, as if there's some magical point where you're ready to be a father and mother. We can't afford a child. Maybe over, the overpopulation hypothesis is correct. You know, we're fearful that our, about, and this is a huge one, we're fearful about what our families will think, and that really kicks in after the second child. Another child? Don't you realize how much we support you already? And you're having more children and more children? We want to travel for a while, and then we'll settle down. Right? We don't have the space. Oh, I'm too selfish to have kids. Right? I can't go through childbirth having not ever done it once. Right? I can't go through that. Too painful. Or I can't, through, I can't go through pregnancy and childbirth again. Right? What about my career? 
What about my body? Right? What about our bank accounts? I mean, there are so many children that need to be adopted. Right? I'm not, I'm not bashing adoption. Please, if, if you can't conceive, adopt. And there are many children who need to be adopted. Christians should be doing that. But so often, for these reasons and maybe worse reasons, Christians choose to use contraception, sometimes even abortive fashions, right? We attempt to calm our consciences by telling ourselves that we are being faithful with what we have, good stewards, a good steward of finances, of education, of our emotions, of our relationships, of the marriage, good stewards of all these things, a good steward of everything, but the fruitfulness for which God made marriage. Good steward of everything but the strength of a woman's body when she is young and healthy and most suited for carrying children. A good steward of our precious entertainment, but not of the very life-giving and nurturing wonder of the female body. The world has duped the church into believing children are an impossible and in and terrible challenge. A challenge worse than imprisonment, exile, chemotherapy, or death. What a curse, they say, children. We've been duped. We've all bought into the lie of the world. As C.S. Lewis said, we are offered a vacation at the beach and choose instead to make mud pies in a puddle. The very first command to God was, be fruitful and multiply. Of God to man was, be fruitful and multiply. And we balk because of godless pagans who have slaughtered their children and made arguments. We cling for a life. We cling for a life like that which is sold to us in advertisements. And that is a life without any children around mucking everything up, isn't it? At least we ourselves are not going to abortion clinics, we think. Oh my, that's so awful. But church members are doing that and they are going to, church members do go to abortion clinics. Presbyterian church members do go to abortion clinics, you realize that. And it is because we, we do that because we're taking our marching orders from advertisers, advertisers and professors about what constitutes the good life, right? Children are not part of the good life, they say. God, though, says otherwise. There are some of you, on the other hand, who are so thrilled about the thought of a child or another child, but God has made it difficult for you. Fertility issues or health issues that require dangerous medications, which require you to not to conceive a child for a time, or God has not opened your womb. 
Your task is to fight against losing the good desire to have children. You have to fight against that. You will become selfish. And you have to fight against that good desire to have children. But you also have to be patient and wait upon the Lord. Okay, Wait on the Lord. He knows, he sees, he understands. Remember the barren women of the Old Testament when it, it, it says that God remembered, you know. God remembered them and then they conceived. But don't do this. Do not take matters into your own hands. Do not pull a Sarai offering Abram Hagar sort of scheme. Don't pull a scheme like that by turning to some method to have a child that is sinful or unethical. Don't turn to those things. You have to wait upon the Lord. Oh, there are ways you can enhance your fertility that do not lead to the imprisonment of embryos in a very cold concentration can. Okay? By all means, enhance your fertility if it will help you and your husband conceive naturally. Right? But but I, so even as I'm pushing, be fruitful and multiply, have babies, I realize that it's painful for me to say that to many of you. But don't lose the desire. The de- desire is good. Your angst over this is proof that you have a good desire for something good and you wish that the Lord would give it to you. And while I'm dealing with some exceptional cases here, let me say this. There may be times when it is right to use barrier methods to keep from conceiving a child. Okay? The reasons and soul... I'm going to say it this way. The sole reason, I think, is when it is necessary to protect the woman or there are serious... There are reasons... It's necessary to protect the physical well-being of the mother, okay? It may be necessary to use barrier method contraceptives, and I say barrier method because you don't want to use the abortifacient type, right? Barrier method contraceptives because of, it may be necessary because of medical treatment a woman must undergo to save her life or some other danger that may come about if she gets pregnant, right? Some, a woman who has had severe postpartum depression, or postpartum psychosis ought to not become pregnant. Okay? I'm talking about a situation where a, where a mother wants to harm her newborn child. Okay? That does happen. So yes, there are times when it is good stewardship to keep from conceiving using non-abortifacient means to protect your life, your health, and your other children's well-being. But I hope you will see that these are very exceptional cases. Very exceptional cases. They come up. Nevertheless, they come up, and this is what I would counsel. Yet our temptation is to use trivial reasons for not having children, okay? I want to pivot back there, whether it is our first or our eighth. You know, it is that we want to travel. We want to save for retirement. My wife doesn't want to go through a normal pregnancy. Delivery, she doesn't want to go through the normal postpartum blues, right? That is not reasonable. I'm talking about very exceptional cases where the life of the mother is impacted or 
the child would be in danger from a mother who is losing her mind. But we really are tempted to want to weasel out of this creation ordinance of God. Okay, so my point here is that God has given us a command to be fruitful and multiply. And it ought to be our delight to trust God with our lives and to obey Him. Dear brothers and sisters, are we so selfish that we don't see the absolute glory of sons and daughters produced through the glorious one flesh union with the very love of our lives. I mean, come on. The fruit of that glorious union with the one you love more than anybody else. A child comes out of that love. It's incredible. It is incredible. And yet we're like, hmm. You know, that's one of those blessings. God could bless me with money. He could bless me with smarts. He could bless me with a car. But children? It is stupendous that God gives us this wonderful gift. It is an unparalleled gift. Our culture has trained us to see children as a drain of finances, terrible investment, an interruption to the good life, a responsibility no one would want to assume, some sort of cosmic downer. But God says, children are a gift, even a reward. A reward. Children are a gift and a reward. Okay, behold, you know, guys know where this is, Psalm 127, behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And in the Hebrew, that's, that means like a lot. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. I mean, the whole impression of that is like, children are great. How great is this? Calvin says this on this passage, The meaning then is this, that children are not the fruit of chance, but that God, as it seems good to Him, distributes to every man His share of them. Moreover, as the prophet repeats the same thing twice, heritage and reward are to be understood as equivalent. For both these terms are set in opposition to fortune or the strength of men. The stronger, listen to this, this is helpful. The stronger a man is, he seems so much the better fitted for procreation. Right? The strong man seems virile, right? like a bull, just made for procreation. And then Calvin goes on, he says, Solomon declares on the contrary that those become fathers to whom God gives the honor. It's not because you're virile in a man. It's because God gives children to you as a gift. Isn't that more incredible than, yeah, I'm virile. Fecund. I'm No, no, God gave you a child because he wished to give you a gift and a reward and to, and to 
bolster your status even in the gates when you're deliberating with your enemies. That's why he gave you the children you have. They're not born to us by fortune or chance or even because of the strength of our body, but solely because God determined to give them to you as a gift and a reward. Then he says that we think backwards. We think a man who has many children has them because he's strong, so fitted, so fitted for procreation, he says. No, the man who has many children has them because God has honored him. He has conferred upon him a gift, a reward, a blessing, strength before his enemies. We think the man who has many children, I mean, get it, get into my brain today. We think the man who has many children has been given a curse, an unbelievable burden, a a demerit in his life. What did he do to deserve that responsibility? right? An embarrassing burden. And especially, there's an embarrassing burden before friends and family. All the friends and family who hold to different views, right? Who, who very much believe that any child over two is enlarging your carbon footprint and you're, you hate mankind, I mean, how many of you have had to deal with that sort of foolishness from your own families? Now, that leads me to this that sort of randomly occurs to me. (laughs) If you are beyond the years of being able to bear children, don't you dare discourage those who are in the years where they are able to. To bear children. I deal with this all the time. And I say this as a father whose daughters are not yet married, and I'm scared to death for them to have children. It scares me to death. I pray for them already, right? I mean, it's an in, it's, it is intense. We all get that. But, but I've had so many, so many of my friends, they they get married, they start having children, and then their parents, after they have one or two child, are, are like, you need to stop. You need to stop now. This is, this is not good. This is, this is crazy. You're fanatical about children. You're in a cult. You're in a cult, a baby-making cult. What is your problem? You need to come out of that cult. So don't don't discourage those who have made a choice in their marriage to, the the woman has made a choice to give up her career and wreck her body to fulfill the creation mandate and produce image bearers. It's glorious. It's a good choice. It's the right thing. It's a no-brainer. Okay? And husbands, you... You love your wives. They got the hard part of the job. The whole pregnancy and delivery is cursed by God. Okay, it's painful. It's hard. Never seen my wife suffer more than during the nine months of a pregnancy when she, for nine months she just couldn't eat. 
But it's so sad how we let others define what the good life is and shut God out of defining what the good life or the blessed life is. The childless man or childless marriage is one that has no defense. It is solitary and it is open to the attacks of the evil one. It leaves a man unarmed, right? This is the psalm. It leaves a man unarmed. Have a quiver full of arrows, you're armed, right? But, but the one who doesn't have that is, is unarmed. Children arm us. They make us ready for battle. They prepare us, yes, for anything that comes along. They strengthen us by their presence and by their affection and by their affecting of sanctification, right? They, they, they strengthen us. They make a man and his wife work for the good, to provide for their care, to think about the future in this life, their future in this life and the next, all for strength. Father and mother aim to have a godly seed and not burden themselves with the grief of rebellious children. But even in that kind of grief, the rebellion of children, he intends to strengthen us. Even if by humbling us with their foolishness or even their destruction, he still aims to improve us. God has said to all men everywhere for all time, be fruitful and multiply. Shall we let the Mormons and the Muslims outdo us in this matter? Oh, man. Because they are. Shall we shun the blessings, the gifts, the rewards, the strengths God intends to give us in this life so that we can travel to Paris, retire on the coast of Florida, drink wine and eat cheese, read thick books without being interrupted by children? You know, read thick books without being interrupted by children who bring you up that soiled, that soiled kid's book that you've read to them 45 times and you, you don't even want to touch the pages. You know? But that's what we do. We just get all... We get all pretentious like this, and we forget the blessings of that. I mean, uh, may it never be that, that we make those sorts of choices, right? May it never be. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The command of God is be fruitful and multiply. Let's, let's work through all of our fears. Let's work through all of our temptations, and let's trust that, that children are a gift and a reward, and let's seek that reward, okay? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so mixed up and confused. We live in a culture that hates children, and, and it's caused us to hate children. And forgive us for this. Forgive us for this, because we know what your word has taught us this morning and what it says, that you're that children, that, that fruitfulness is your first command and that children are a gift. And so, Father, I pray that we would repent of shunning that reward and that gift. We would rather be solitary than surrounded by those that, that love us. 
And so, Father, help us to, to work through our fears, to resist our temptations, to encourage those who are in the midst of these battles, to help women who are carrying child, to do this glorious hard work, to have the whole comfort and strength of the body surrounding them. And may our children then have their own children. And may they see that it is their, their same order from God and the same blessing applies to them. May they be granted spouses, husbands or wives that, that understand this and are committed to it. Forgive us for the ways that we have sinned as we approach children. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.